Hey. There you are, Lisa. Good afternoon, Culture Uncorked, take two. We thought we were having a great conversation. <laughs> Anyways, let's start over. So I would like to introduce you to Arun Sequira, and Arun is, is here locally from a merger and acquisition boutique firm uh, that's celebrating their 10th year this year. Uh, welcome, Arun. Thank you. So we were just talking about how the secret set, the secret to your success is surrounding yourself with really great people. We know that you're on a number of boards um, and you keep yourself very busy, not only chairing, but you're a treasurer and so forth. So tell me what's keeping you up at night these days? Good question. I guess the easy one is, uh, is COVID. Lisa, and the <laughs> that comes with that, and how long yeah. um, are we going to be affected? Um, number one, and then number two, um, in terms of Alberta, the you know the downturn in the oil and gas industry that had already happened, COVID that now has um, hit us and impacted us, and. Um, and the regulatory environment we're in and challenge yeah. getting pipelines uh, through, et cetera, those probably are the uh, challenges on the on the business side. And then uh, I guess as a society, just the, you know, being part of End Poverty Edmonton and I attended my first meeting on that round table and you yeah. think about the challenges uh, people are facing, the the polarization, uh, certainly in the U.S. and to some extent in Canada that we are seeing, uh, those are also worrisome that I think we need to pay attention to. So, I just want to say congratulations. You know, sometime um, I had a chance to live in uh, some major U.S. Uh, metroplexes and, uh, and work in Europe and you come back to Edmonton and you forget we have these world-class players sometime right here locally. And you've made a lot of people's dreams come true, both on the buy and the sell side of all these businesses that you've helped people realize and, and receive value for. And, and we, we talk a lot about culture and leadership here on this uh, broadcast. And so great to have someone um, with the, who looks at the world from your angle to contribute to that. Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz. And I'm sure you know those guys out of out of uh, Sand Hill Roll. I wrote a book called "You Are What You Do" and and talked about the importance of culture and and how do you view uh, when you make an assessment and to determine a, the value of an organization? What role does culture and all its mushiness play as you try to put valuation to that? Good question, Lauren. Um, I think value is driven by earnings and cash flow. That's the textbook definition. That's what we were taught in business school. Um, but what, you know, what creates sustainable long-term cash flow? And that certainly would be influenced by uh, the purpose of the corporation, by the culture and values of the, of the corporation. And a lot of that is toned from the top. You know what? What kind of message uh, and example are the leaders setting? So uh, I think 
you know, is it uh, culture will eat strategy for lunch every time? I think is or some variation of that. Any uh, meal you want, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, some variation of that. Yeah. So culture, uh, culture is important in in driving value. It uh, it's what allows a business to generate income and cash flows, and it's uh, what allows an enterprise to be sustainable over the long haul. So. Well, you've got a great antenna, right? You go and everybody's got a story. And, you know, I've been around um, both founders and, you know, I've done all those different. And there's always a, a sense of, of you know, you know, people and you help bring realism to people's sense of what the value really is, right, by the work you do. And and when someone says to you, you know what, Arun, um, we've got a great culture here and we think that's part of the reason that we're generate good EBITDA and we generate good cash flow, et cetera. What's your bullshit test on that? Like, how do you go about and kind of help to test that? The, the tests would be um, deep conversations with the owner or uh, executives running the business. You learn a lot about their, uh, their views, their, attitudes um, and their ways of doing business would be would be one and where the rubber hits the road um, as I think about the many many plant tours I've done for example where the owner or president of the organization is walking you through the shop uh, where the rubber hits the road is that 20 minutes or half an hour when you're getting the tour, what is the interaction between that owner and the staff? You know, if the staff are quickly huddling over their machines and keeping their heads down, that sends a strong message. When the staff stop for a minute, you know, smile, the president or owner knows the name of that person operating that machine, that speaks volumes about the culture of the of the organization and uh, the tone from the top. So it's the shop walkabout test, I guess, is the yeah. always stuck in my mind uh, over and above uh, all the other things. So that yeah, that's a great um, that's a great example. And and you know, sometimes we're in those environments where there is a walkability kind of test that we can a little bit easier to do. And knowledge organizations are a little bit harder. Do you have any on that side of the house that you look for that are kind of metaphors for that? Yeah. Um, I, I think the in knowledge-based businesses the, where you don't have that shop floor to, to walk around, I think it's the treatment of the employees and attitudes towards employees and empowering the employees uh, looking after your your people is the is the asset test and uh, a lot of times you'll see organizations they have their value statements in their boardroom and all that kind of stuff but do they live it and um, I guess we look for signs as to whether they're living what they have on the plaque in the in the boardroom and uh, and what their policies are towards their employees. Uh, you know, do they trust their employees? Do they empower their employees to deal with the clients or customers of the 
of the business. Those are all acid tests of whether they're uh, living their values and there is a good culture there. Lisa, do you mind if I just keep following this line for a few minutes? Yeah, you can't. I'll question. Don't you worry. Uh, <laughs> so we just kind of like to tap into this beautiful body of knowledge that you have in your experience for the variety. We have entrepreneurs and people inside uh, organizations uh, that are more traditional, etc. But if I were a, um, uh, if I were a startup right now, um, and I asked you around. Um, you know, I said, I just read this book and I think I should have a purpose statement and, you know, and, and, um, you know, mission, vision, blah, blah, blah. That's been all around for a long time. And, and what's it, you know, now this is now that people are talking about purpose statement or when do you think I need to invest any time? I mean, don't, doesn't it just matter that I've got a good business model and I've got, and I've got good margins and isn't that all that counts? And, you know, why would I put any energy? Why would you ask me any questions or put any, any energy into purpose? So I, I would say that if you have good cash flows and the business is doing well, then maybe you do have some purpose. <laughs> you are doing lots of the right things and just don't realize it or haven't defined it. Um, and um, I guess I would pick up the discussion from there. And that's number one. And then number two, uh, I would say the world is changing from you know, creating value simply for shareholders to now creating value for all stakeholders. And yeah. if you think of it in those terms, creating value for all stakeholders, um, your customers, your employees, the communities you're in, uh, Etc. Then purpose becomes important, and in the short run, you may be able to sustain your profits. But if you're not mindful of your bigger purpose and doing right by that broader stakeholder group, then over time, your profits and cash flows may be challenged. You know, I, I just I'm so happy to hear you say that. You know, I mean, I because um, I think you know. I, I, I completely agree that the score the scorecard is going to have to be EBITDA and growth and cash flow and all those. Th I mean, that's you know that tells you in the marketplace whether you're getting your you know people value what you're what you're offering. I, I think though to make it sustainable, you really have to be clear about what you're you know why you're getting up in the morning. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to motivate a whole bunch of people simply on cash flow. Yeah. As much as that, it's just not going to happen. And I'm so glad to hear you saying, and you're giving advice to people to help them. Because sometimes, like you say, they might have a great business model, but they haven't really backed up enough to ask why it really is as successful as it is. And when you can help people bring clarity to that, I think it just makes an enormous difference to the. And the world has changed. Do you think millennials, are you finding millennials? There's data that says it is. I'm just wondering if it passes your smell test that millennials really want to be part of organizations where purpose is clear and they put they're a little bit more discerning than the previous generations. Do you take you by that or what's yeah. your perspective? That? Yeah, I do. And I think uh, the stats now would say that the millennials have taken over the boomers, the baby boomers <laughs> as the biggest voting block in, yeah. in society. And, uh, yeah, I think we are seeing the impact of that right now in terms of um, the political 
arena in in Canada, for example, uh, etc. So the Liberal Party uh, has done a good job of attracting the millennials uh, and the millennial vote, etc. So they are a big factor, and we better you know we better take notice and ensure that business is. Uh, mindful of their needs and their attitudes because they are customers and they are employees as well and you know big parts of the political and communities that we live in so yeah I was, go go lisa i was just gonna because we're talking about millennials um on average what is the average age of your actual clients like are millennials starting to step up into the m a space where you're dealing with them more at both sides of the table or no are you still finding that it's an older generation um on the exit side lisa it tends to be so sellers of businesses tends yeah. to be a little bit older demographic although yeah. uh there are there are a bunch of younger entrepreneurs that hit a wall. Maybe they've taken the business as far as they can on their own. And one option is to sell to a uh, larger player or sell to a private equity group or sale for growth, we call it, where selling the business or selling a majority stake in the business is a way of taking the business to the next level. We see that. And um, in terms of some of the new economy businesses like software companies and things like that, uh, the entrepreneurs uh, tend to be younger. And that is a sector, the tech sector and um, software sector, software as a service, for example, would be an area similar to what oil and gas used to be where you would get these great management teams that would start up a little oil and gas producing company and their goal was not to build it for the next 20 years their goal was to build it for three four five years sell it to the somebody up the food chain and do it all over again so we are starting yeah. to see that yeah. segment where the sellers are younger and younger and on the buyer side the folks that are now key management in companies that are acquiring other companies, we tend to find a younger younger demographic there as well. Interesting, very interesting. Sorry, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, no, I wanna jump on the notion of uh, resilience for a minute from your perspective. Um, you've probably seen, we all have, uh, that COVID has been um, indiscriminate around uh, winners and losers, right? It's made them and taken it away. And, um, some of these uh, small businesses or, any, or all sizes, but many small ones, these owners that have just lost so much value. And, and um, what, what's your advice? What are you saying to these leaders that are there and they're seeing their businesses just get creamed? And uh, what's your, what, what, you know, what's the, what do you say to them? It is uh disheartening to watch um, what is happening um, you know in the restaurant business and small businesses tourism related businesses uh, that are getting crushed that have put their life savings into these businesses um, and I think to try to 
pivot as best as you can. So if you're a restaurant, obviously many are, you know, starting to think about takeout, really promoting their catering and takeout, not catering so much, but their takeout uh, segments, number number one. And then number two, cost management and uh, going to your landlord and trying to get some relief, getting relief from your uh, bankers, perhaps uh, doing those sorts of things. And then finally, I would say get if those items aren't working and uh, you know, you've know you done your forecasts and it's the business isn't feasible, then uh, if those businesses, if the business isn't feasible, then I would say get some insolvency advice from an insolvency professional you know, to cash in all your RSPs and put it into the business when there is no hope of survival you are just, uh, I guess, taking a bad situation and making it worse. So at some stage, it may be prudent to get some advice. And there are, um, you know, proposals under the Bankruptcy Act or the Companies Creditors Arrangement Act uh, or the bankruptcy process, et cetera. It's, it's not the first line of defense. You shouldn't look at those things lightly, but if that is the only answer, then get proper advice would be my, um, would be my. I, I appreciate your honesty, and I, and I think we need more of that kind of, you know, just there, there's some wisdom. I mean, it's not, it's not, you can't, you, it's nothing to be ashamed of if you just decide you just can't, it just doesn't, for whatever reason. You yeah. just, you know, you just, that doesn't make sense. Lisa, you're going to jump in. Yeah, I was going to say, well, and, and you know, to, to your point, to the last point of, you know, getting that advice, sometimes, you know, it's so difficult to see uh, the bigger picture when you're stuck inside the picture frame, right? And yeah. especially when you're emotionally, I mean, the emotional attachment to having, you know, built this business, you know, you nailed it, you scaled it, and then COVID came along and it wiped you out. Yeah. And, you know, how do you rec recover from that emotionally and try to grasp onto any straw imaginable to keep going? And, you know, seeing that, you know, that's a great piece of advice of getting that extra advice, because if you're dumping all your life savings into something that might you might not be seeing what you should be looking at properly, that outside advice looking in is so valuable, especially yeah, today. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Lauren, if I could just jump in on uh, on one thing is I think it's important in times like this, and this is maybe, you know, do as I say and not do as I do, but it it's important uh, for people to realize that their business doesn't define them. So failure in business doesn't mean you're a failure as a, as a person. These are extraordinary times that we're in. And uh, as you said, there's no shame in not succeeding in times uh, like this. So uh, I think Albertans on balance are a resilient lot. So even if you end up taking a bullet in these times, um, I think, you know, I think we have the ability as a province and as uh, entrepreneurs in this province to pick ourselves. Yeah. So I was gonna, yeah. I was gonna just, um, you know, I uh, we have a little farm out here in, on the uh, Naramata Bench. I don't know if you know where that is in the Okanagan. Yeah. 
And uh, in the little village of Naramata, there's a wonderful little restaurant called the Grape Leaf. And, um, you know, these, these these people are just like, it's the end of the road, but they're always busy. There's always a lineup, which is my one of my tests around a business of value is how many people are lined up out the door to be part of it. Yeah. By March 15th, they had knocked a hole in the side of their restaurant and were doing a booming takeout business. Yeah. They took no more than two weeks to decide to do that. Yeah. I'm so curious around how do you teach that adaptability? Like, you know, like, and some organizations and some businesses in similar circumstances, they're still paralyzed and have not been able to adjust. These guys adjusted in days. So yeah. what's the story, Arun? How do we help promote in our, you know, amongst uh, Albertans and others, this sense of rapid adaption? Yeah. And at the end of the day, Lauren, I think it comes down to quality of management and, uh, and you know, great management teams are able to deal with adversity, make the best of a bad situation if, um, if you will. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you, I wish there were some fairy dust you could sprinkle on people to give yeah. them, give them that ability. So why did that restaurant react that quickly and see what was ahead while somebody else wasn't able to see around the corner? Um, and that is quality of management. So I'm not sure there is a, uh, there is a quick fix for that. Um, what I might suggest to uh, people is lean on your network, lean on you know the the mentors you've had, the um, the paid professional advisors you can reach out to. As we were talking about, um, talk to your banker, talk to you know Uncle Fred or Aunt Sally that built that great business and see what advice. Uh, I think um, the one thing I can tell you that there are lots of uh, gray-haired, successful business people that um, are eager to help the next generation of entrepreneurs. So I guess don't be afraid to ask for help and advice might be the one yeah. comment if I had one. I yeah. think I think that's probably the most valuable piece is that I think people forget that you're right. There are people who are dying to extend a lending hand and helpful advice, but you just have to ask. And if you yeah. don't ask, you're not going to get the advice. Um, yeah. And sometimes that requires, you know, gulping your your you know your your ego, if you will, and yeah. really taking the courage to step forward. And sometimes it takes a little bit of grit too. Yeah. Yeah, and I think to you know show a little vulnerability and ask for help. Uh, uh, I've done that many, many times over the course of my career. Glad I glad I did. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if I was to ask you, so I, I want to play a little game because um, we've got about fifteen minutes left, uh, uh, and I'm going to ask you first of all when I ask you the word belonging, what does that mean to you? How do you define that? What does that mean to you? What does it mean to your company? 
Good question. I guess when I think belonging, I think being part of a part of something, uh, yeah. you know, a company, a team, your family, your community uh, is what I think about. Um, when I think about uh, that word and uh, I guess pulling together, pulling together when needed and uh, kind of flying on your own at times, but always having that community uh, that you can come back to when needed. Well, and you have, I mean, you have an amazing team, right? That you've been around and together for, you know, well over 10 years. Um, and so clearly the secrets, you've got a secret sauce to the culture that you that you have. And is belonging part of that? And if so, how do you foster a sense of belonging, not just with your team, but with your clients? Um, I think it is a... Um sincere desire to help and do right by your clients. Yeah. Ironically, um, we are in a very transactional business. You hire us to yeah. sell your company. And when we sell your company, we get a, uh, you know, get a fee for doing that. And then we move on to the next company and you move on uh, with your life is the business we're in. But, uh, I don't think we view it transactionally. We view it from a relationship standpoint that um, you know, we're getting involved with somebody at a, a pretty important transition in their life, like a life-changing, career-changing event when we represent a, a business owner in the sale of their sale of their company. So I think the, that uh, attachment, the sense of belonging, uh, is building that relationship before we get hired by that client, after we're hired by that client, and the relationship that continues on for many years after the transaction is over. So that forms part of the community. And then in terms of our, uh, in terms of our teammates, uh, you know, the, the same thing. We're we're in the trenches daily with uh, with each other, and you do build strong relationships. And uh, even when people leave the firm, uh, this was my takeaway from uh, my past life with a big four accounting firm. They've they yeah. valued their alumni. Like once you left the firm, it, you weren't you know a dreaded competitor now or anything like that. You were a valued alumni of the firm and still part of that community. So I think we try to try to foster that, that people will want other things and they're still part that's of that. Yeah. That, that's ahead. important because, you know, Lauren and I do a lot of work around belonging, you know, with, with our, with our new company, uh, Belongify. And we, we talk endlessly um, internally about, you know, how bad companies do leave, you know, when you leave a company, how bad they do it. And so it's really encouraging to hear that you have a handle on that. Right, Lauren? Yeah, no, I think it's great. And I, I think accounting firm, like, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people who are working elsewhere from Deloitte or PwC or you name it, they always talk about often, they often refer to that as an, as something that they're often proud to have yeah. part of the legacy, right? And I, I think they've done a better job of that. And But definitely we have to do better around 
the notion around how people leave, right? I mean, if you're if you ever if you're running a bank, who do you want mad leaving when they're really unless it's egregious, right? They're still ideally they're going to bank with you or whatever. But um, I, you know, I I hardly I know Lisa knows you quite well, Arun. I'm I, I'm just getting to know you here uh, for the first time actually, and I can't help it though because uh, we do crunchy issues here too on uh, on court. And um, what's your perspective on our growth? as a community on the issue of racism and social justice. And what's, you know, when people, when you're, when, when, when people that you're close to are asking you for your viewpoint, what's, how are you feeling about that at a, both a personal and professional level? And what would you share with our audience on that? Yeah, good question. Um, I think, I think, I would say that for uh, many years, we've been fairly smug in, in Canada. I don't think anyone would say, you know, there is no racism here, but many would believe it's not systemic. You know, we're not like the U.S. where they have the problems, uh, et cetera. And I think we're probably been uh, a bit naive. I think... Uh, you know, we are a polite society in Canada, so it perhaps is more subtle than overt. Um, but as important as that, I think it's the, you know, the systemic racism. And when you say that, people go, well, what do you mean? Obviously, we're not like that. Um, yeah. But I, I think the systemic racism goes to things we don't even realize, like unconscious biases that get embedded into, um, you know, whether it's uh, in healthcare or in education or in business or whatever the, whatever the case might be. Uh, and, and let me use uh, gender as an example, again, and going back to my, um, my experience with the large accounting firm. So this is turn the clock back 15 or so years. And, um, the the articling student that came into the profession were you know 50 50 men and women actually the women may be slightly more just the just the demographics so you start out kind of 50 50 and then once they obtain their cpas um uh and then you know measured two years after and now it would be and i don't remember the exact numbers yeah. Uh, now it would be uh, 60, 60, 40 men to women. So, you know, what, what happened? The, they were pretty uh, forward-thinking organizations, do right by all their employees, et cetera. So how did, uh, how did that happen? And when you follow it up and then you look at the partner ranks, it would have been, you know, 5 or 10% women and... Uh, 90% men. So how, how did that happen if there is no systemic bias, right? So, so when they peeled the onion, what they found were that a lot, the firms were set up to uh, define success in such a way that it gave men an advantage over the women. So to become a partner in a big accounting firm, you had to be a good business developer. So the culture would be take clients to uh, hockey games, for example, and um, take clients to hockey games. 
And for women, that wasn't, you know, to go for a, to a hockey game with a male client, et cetera. There's just uh, some different dynamics there than for, uh, for a man. And uh, similarly, like it or not, uh, women are still the primary caregivers. So to have all your business development activities happen in the evening, disadvantage the, the women, right? Or if you want to then take it one step further, uh, if your business development is all around uh, hockey games, then somebody that's uh, recently or new to Canada that doesn't know hockey, I mean, some of the onus is on them to learn the game, but you do have a little bit of built-in bias that somebody that grew up on skates when they were three years old onwards will have an advantage. So it isn't that there's anything wrong with taking clients to hockey games. It just made the firms take a look and say, hey, maybe we should start thinking about other activities where the women in the firm could build relationships with clients and succeed that involves something other than taking clients to hockey games or evening activities, right? So there, hey, hey, I'm really glad that you elaborate on that, Arun, because I think this idea of white privilege and institutional, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a tender subject to walk into, but we have to move to, we have to have these conversations. And because, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, I think we have uh, caring, well-intended people when we open it up and people have a chance to get to see and to, of course we can see it, but it, I think you're right. It's been hidden. It's been naive. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I mean, uh, we've been naive about it. I happen to know someone who does the, uh, um, uh, this uh, inclusion index that's w done with very big companies across North America yeah. and uh, much of Europe. The data is that we're every bit as uninclusive in Canada as we are in the U.S. I mean, that we're all—you can almost hardly tell the difference. Uh, yeah. But that's uh, Canadians have been smug about it. I think we think that somehow. But if you ask, you know, people from an Indigenous perspective, yeah. you know. The, they see a different, uh, they stand on a different uh, angle. And um, and so we just got lots of work to do. Yeah. And we need, yeah. I was with a sports, a coach of a sports team yesterday and he was, um, you know, the team wants to participate in it. And, you know, and if you're the part of the BIPOC community, it's easier to stand with some legitimacy in the conversation, but you've got a, a lot of the white community that also wants to be productive and in big part of the conversation and are worried about being clumsy or incorrect. And we're just going to have to find our way forward uh, together uh, with better understanding. And we just need to open it up. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, uh, you know, your heart is in the right place, then mumbling yeah. on a few words isn't the end of the world. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and on the, I, I have... sorry, go ahead, Lisa. Go, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say on the on the topic of um, indigenous relations in Canada. I mean that is really a uh, a black eye on our history as to as to what's happened there. And I've learned to uh, I have way more to learn, but I have learned a little bit from my involvement with the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities uh, Corp. And I think that's an area where uh, there is now a lot more awareness and uh that's where it starts is to be yeah. to be aware right so yeah and i you know i've been hanging around norquist helping uh it's been a privilege to help and the indigenous center the 
Yeah. Uh, the elders and the folks there, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm the so early days around really understanding, but I'm, I'm in the mix anyway. And, and, you know, you got to get your heart in the right place. And, um, the, yeah. um, yeah, I was just going to say, um, the other, the other thing I would say is this isn't just about the BPOC community and helping them out and making their life better. Um, if you want to make Canada better and a more competitive environment relative to the rest of the world, you better make sure you're taking the most talented people in your society and giving all of them equal opportunity to make your country as good as it possibly can be. The enemy is not enemy is a harsh word, but uh, you know, our challenge is not competing with each other and worrying about, well, if we help this indigenous youth or this black youth or this Asian youth get a leg up, um, we're gonna take something away from the white youth. That isn't what we should be worried about is if we don't do all of the things to make us the best, most productive, competitive country on earth, other countries are gonna eat our lunch. That's what we should be worried about, so. You know, I'm such a big uh, fan and belief in abundance and expanding the pie for all of us. And that's a, that um, that we need to do. And I and I think we're fully capable of doing it. Yeah. Hey, can I, uh, Lisa, do you mind? Um, I'm so curious about uh, you investing in homelessness and um, and why and what's your, you know, what's your hope out of that? Yeah, good question. Um, so the the um, the invite came to join the End Poverty Edmonton. So there's a, a homelessness component. There's a living wage component. There's a indigenous uh, component. There's a racism component. So they're looking at a whole bunch of uh, issues. And I've only been to one meeting this morning. So. <laughs> We'll give you a break. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess uh, a little bit of it is just I'm at the stage in my career and my life where you know you wanna you wanna give back. I should have probably been doing it 20 or 30 years ago. More of this, but uh, you do wanna to give back. So so the areas that uh, um, they were looking for is I think they realized that one of the big items of uh, ending poverty in Edmonton would be creating meaningful, gainful employees, um, et cetera, for, for those that are experiencing poverty. And the business community is a big part of that. So in terms of creating employment and uh, creating opportunities for those that are marginalized now uh, and are living in poverty, that the business community is a big part of that uh, solution, right? Like if every business in uh, Edmonton hired one extra person or figured out how they, for their next hire, they could include somebody that is marginalized now, you'd solve the problem fairly quickly. So I think um, uh, the round table was looking for some representation that could connect them to business for you know, knowledge and expertise, for employment opportunities, et cetera. So that would be one. And, um, and then uh, I think you know, being a person of color, although my kids tell me that uh, I grew up with brown privilege, I didn't even know. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, being a person of color uh, and probably as importantly, my time with uh, Ernst & Young, the accounting firm that was ahead of their time in terms of some of their diversity and inclusion yeah. initiatives, et cetera. Uh, I guess I have a little bit of knowledge uh, and life experience there that I could bring to the group. So early days yet. So hopefully I'll be able to contribute something to that group. So. Yeah, I just noticed Rod Miller, who's the head of the um, HR community here in Alberta, their their yeah. uh, their top notch CEO, uh, joining and being part of the. We have the all these people that are part of this conversation that we come together like we make things happen, right? And um, and uh, I appreciate you doing. You know, I lived in Seattle for almost thirty years, and uh, if you want to understand what happens when you don't pay attention to homelessness and and how mm. complex issue yeah. it is just if you could watch what's happened in that community over 30 years like it is shocking yeah like yeah. you can't drive down i-5 without the entire seeing the feeling it and seeing it and yeah. it has an uh, uh enormous impact on the community yeah and and you know being a accountant by uh training uh, when you think about the cost of homelessness, like we think there's a cost to doing something about homelessness. Uh, I don't know if I heard this correctly, but I saw uh, chief, our police chief talking about resources and, and whatnot. And I think his comment was something like 200 or 250 people resulted uh in 19,000 police incidents. Yeah, so I've seen that data. I've seen that report. Yeah, so I, I don't know if I have those numbers right, but it was shocking. Uh, and you got to think that, you know, it's the right thing to do, first of all, but even from a financial standpoint, if you can figure out what's causing those 200 people to be homeless or in poverty or you know, if they're suffering from addiction or mental health issues, you can help them face their challenges. You would save a whole bunch on policing and other other initiatives, right? So uh, I think there is a cost to society um, of not dealing with poverty and homelessness. So. Yeah, and I'm so glad to see that you and other leaders, we have to step into the uh, conversation, not close our eyes and pull the shades down, right? Because that 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 just is not. And I, I appreciate the city of Edmonton and the mayor have been quite um, quite aspirational about it, and um, and and it makes sense from every angle. The, um, we at least I know you kind of always bring us to some of these closing kind of things, and and um, can I ask you know, in the same spirit? When is the best time? Because we have a bias to this around um, Lisa and I. The research we see out there is that the world is asking, literally the world, there's data behind it, to move from diversity to inclusion to belonging. All those pieces are important, but there it's a, there's a continuum and social justice is in there as well. And that if you can bring, and there's some science around how you can bring, you can accelerate that because it brings better results in organizations. People create more value when they they belong and they fully can contribute, they can thrive. So it's got both a, you know, it it contributes to our well-being, it contributes to our sense that we have this mantra about 
we put the me back in we in the right kind of way, but it creates tremendous value when it's right. When have you felt like you most belong? And when's the time when you felt like you didn't belong? When you, And what did it feel like? And share one or both of those. Oh, boy. Good question. Good question. And you, uh, I, I told you this would be a unique show yeah. that you would be coming on. The questions would be unique. <laughs> um, I would say most belong would be in, uh, uh, in some of the firms I've been involved with. Either, well, obviously, if it's your firm, there's a strong sense of belonging, but even other other firms, um, et cetera, the, the accounting firms I've been with over the years and whatnot, there would have been a strong sense of belonging. When you're in a family setting, there's a strong sense of, uh, of belonging. And then probably when you felt like you didn't belong um, would have been an instance like a social setting where um, everyone knew everyone and you didn't know anyone or many, many people, right? So, um, and um, yeah, and I guess if you, if I think back to a few occasions like that, that is a, uh, you feel fairly isolated, like everyone else is talking to each other, having a good time and um, no one really keen to engage with you or, uh, or didn't create that sense of inclusion in that in that discussion, uh, et cetera. So th- I guess those would be examples. You know, I'm so glad you raised that, Aaron, because yeah. that's the we're trying. That's what we in in our big thought, big head world of thinking big and trying to do something big. Yeah, we'd like to we'd like to turn that down so that rarely happened to us and turn up this sense when you feel really welcome and people see you and you see others. So, yeah. Um, actually, uh, sorry. Finish your thought. Lauren. No, that, 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 that's just the, the thing. Uh, actually uh, a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine, a, a black Canadian that lives in Ontario. Uh, her comment was, you know, uh, inclusion is, being invited to the dance and then being, I guess, belonging. I can't remember how she framed it, but belonging is being there, having fun and just being mm-hmm. part of the, part of the dance and not just being invited and um, yeah. you know, having some superficial conversations with a, with that, a, so, right? yeah. You know, yeah. Diversity is what you've been invited. Yeah. I mean, inclusion is that, you're asked to show up. Yeah. When you really belong, man, you are there in it. Yeah. Having fun, totally feeling accepted. And 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 I know it's aspirational, but we're gonna we're committed to that. And uh, but it's people like you that inspire us. And uh thank you for making Alberta and just all of us better with what you do and your leadership and your contributions to the community. And thanks for hanging out with Lisa and me on this show. Lisa, I'll let you pull the wrap up on this. Sounds good. Well, I want to say thank you as well, Arun. I mean, you've dropped some serious nuggets of of wisdom along the way here. And, um, you know, wish health and wealth and happiness to your family over the Christmas holidays and uh, a prosperous new year. Thank 
thanks to the two of you for the uh, invite. And uh, I guess I would say to everybody listening, you know, be safe uh, and uh, persevere. We will, we will get through. lot in Alberta. Be well. Thank you. Be safe. Happy holidays. Bye for now. Bye now.